Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're going to talk about a, a lot of big things, and we're going to address them from, I think, what is going to be a, a fairly unique perspective, because one of the things is, is that there's so much to do in life, and there's so much divine service to do in life. We've got 613 commandments, and those are just the, the ones that are listed in the, the written Torah. Each one of those commandments has many subdivisions to it. Even the seven universal commandments, which are on all of humanity, are much more than seven. I'll give you one example. One of the seven universal commandments is to believe in God. And that includes, according to Rav Moshe Feinstein, that includes to pray to God. Because one of the ways of believing in God is praying to God. So there you see how even these overarching seven universal commandments actually have subdivisions to them. So one of the things that's so easy, unfortunately, unfortunately I say, is to get lost within the details. It's so easy. It's so easy. And then you tend to emphasize the, the less important things, often at the expense of the more important things. Not only that, but you tend to get confused and you tend to fight with other people because you're so tangled up in all the minutiae that you're missing the big points. So, for instance, here's some big points. We're all God's children. Here's another big point. We're supposed to love each other, okay? So if you're forgetting those points, then you're starting to just lose the entire vision. And I heard in the name of George Santayana, who is very well known for saying that those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. But I heard in his name that he, he said something else, which is that what is the definition of a fanatic? A fanatic is someone who redoubles their efforts as they forget what it is they were supposed to do to begin with. <laughs> In other words, you've got to be really afraid of fanatics because fanatics are working super hard and they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> Which means if you want the definition of a bull in a china shop, that's a bull in a china shop. It's someone who's running around breaking everything and they've forgotten what it is that they're supposed to be here for. So that's why these overviews are really, really important. At the same time, though, you can't be a good-hearted ignoramus, meaning to say you can't just say, hey, it's all good, it's all good, you know, we all love each other, and then not understand what you're supposed to do in this world. There is a detailed program of what we're supposed to do. And some people get very frustrated about that because it becomes inconvenient. Imagine someone gives you their email, but they leave out one letter or one number. It doesn't get through, does it? So in other words, even in our most commonly used ways of communicating and connecting with each other, you see that there's a level of precision that's there, whether, and whether we want to acknowledge it or not. So the idea of connecting and precision also applies 
to this fabulously complex and wonderful universe that God created. There are wavelengths that we're supposed to align ourselves with. And to put it more simply, we call those the mitzvot. These are the commandments from the Torah. So we're supposed to follow these things because this is the full email or the full phone number. And, and that way we can fully connect. Okay. So now, with that in mind, what's the overview? So, it says in Gomorrah Makos, the rabbis want to figure out exactly how many commandments are there in the five books. And of course, we take it as just a given that there's 613, because we know the answer. But the rabbis had to figure out that there were 613. Well, how did they figure it out exactly? And through a fascinating way, by the way, the Torah is called a book of teaching. Now, that might sound obvious to you, but let me tell you why it's not obvious. Because people look at the Torah and they want to know, where are the dinosaurs? <laughs> but it's not a book of history. <laughs> they want to know. Where are a million things? Where is this historical event? And where is that historical event? By the way, the dinosaurs are mentioned in the Torah. It says, Tanim Gedolim. Tanim are, can be translated as, as giant lizards. Tanim Gedolim, giant lizards, which is what dinosaurs were, essentially. So anyway, that, that's just an aside. Also, I heard a fascinating explanation about why dinosaurs aren't mentioned in the Torah. I'll just, while we're on the subject, I'll just throw it out to you, which is that dinosaurs were unknown at the time that the Torah was given, and God wanted to communicate in the language of the people of the time. So he didn't want to give them, like, examples and reference points that they were completely unfamiliar with. So it's there, but it's just alluded to in a language that was more acceptable to the people at the time so that they could comprehend it. The Torah is this amazing book that does in fact contain everything, but the things that are selected to include in the Torah are only there for the specific purpose of God teaching us a lesson. If there isn't a specific lesson that God wants to teach us through that particular thing, it's not included in the Torah. Because if it were to actually have explicitly written in it everything in existence, how big would the Torah be? <laughs> you know, one of my favorite writers, his last name is Borges. He's an Argentinian writer. He's not alive anymore, but he's one of the great writers. I really recommend his He wrote short stories, and they're all like these amazingly imaginative meditations on infinity, basically. He was not Jewish, but he studied Kabbalah. In fact, one of the names of his books is called Aleph, after the first letter of the Torah. And he's a phenomenal, phenomenal writer. Anyway, one of his, this just gives you one example of just how, an, how amazing his imagination was. He talks about these two explorers who were map makers, and they were going to this very exotic country, and they wanted to make a, a detailed map. In fact, they wanted to make it so detailed, you ready, that the scale of the map was one to one. <laughs> do, do, do you understand why that's so hilarious? 
because the map itself was the exact size of the country. <laughs> you have to be so creative to come up with that. And you have to have an absolutely brilliant sense of humor to come up with that. You know? Anyway, B-O-R-G-E-S, if you want to read some of his stuff. Anyway, imagine what the... The Torah does, in fact, contain everything. But imagine what how large the Torah would be if it was all explicitly written. It would be one-to-one -one the size of the universe. Do you understand? So God selects certain events in human history, certain teachings that he wants to bring out in particular. And, and that's what it is, because it's not a book of history. It's not a book of science. It is a book of teachings. And I told you that there's 613 mitzvot. Well, the Torah, the numerical equivalent of the Torah, the gematria of the word Torah, is 611. And God spoke the first two commandments at Mount Sinai. And that adds up to 613. That's what it says at the end of Gomorrah Makos. Okay? Anyway, I am sort of trying to avoid using the word commandments because the word commandments is an English word. And, you know, the problem with English translations is that they put an alien theology on Judaism and on Torah. You know, there's so many misunderstandings that have taken place. Whole new religions have sprung up just from the misreading of the Torah. I mean, so you, you have to try to stay in the Hebrew and the, the intention of the Hebrew. Otherwise, you're in la-la land, basically. But anyway, so translating it as commandments suggests a all-powerful dictator with a whip who's standing over us. And that's not God. God loves us to pieces. So if, if that's the case, I, I very much like Reb Shlomo's definition of commandments, of mitzvot, which is divine pathways. Divine pathways. And of course the word mitzvah has as its Hebrew word the, the Hebrew word for connect. They're all points of connection with the divine. That's what it is. These are all superior translations by far. Because ultimately, this world is a love affair. It's a big love story between us and God. And, and that's probably, because that's the truest thing, it's probably the easiest thing to get lost in the shuffle. Okay. So now, again, my what I'm trying to do right now is to give you a super overview of everything. Now, let's zero in on those first two commandments that God said. Obviously, if God himself is speaking at Mount Sinai and he's selecting those two commandments, that's going to contain everything. Do you understand? That's going to be a microcosm of the entirety of the Torah is going to be contained, at least on a general level, in those first two commandments. And in fact, we know that the entire Torah is contained within the Ten Commandments, and all of that is contained within the first two commandments. And did God even actually speak out the first two commandments? So now it gets super, super deep, but this is a sidebar right now. I'm going to return to the first two commandments in a moment, but let me just tell you how deep this gets. Some very deep sources, I heard from Reb Shlomo, say that God just pronounced the word Anochi at Mount Sinai. That's the first word of the Ten Commandments. That means, I am. Can you imagine? God just said, 
I am. And it was contained and understood everything. Contained was, was contained within that. Now, the Carmarno Rebbe, one of the great Kabbalists, I heard from Reb Shlomo, said something that I'm still, you can, you can just bliss out on this teaching for the rest of your life. That what Hashem did was, He didn't even say Anochi. He didn't even say I am. He pronounced the first letter of Anochi, the Aleph. Now, that's all God did. He pronounced the letter Aleph. Now, why is that so way out? Because Aleph is a silent letter. So God pronounced the letter Aleph and contained within that was everything. Okay, so this is the, the deepest, deepest depths right now. Okay, and this is all about the oneness of God. Because remember, Aleph is the number one. That means there is no intermediary between us and God. There is no intermediary. It's just God alone. Okay. So we have the first two commandments, which God spoke at. That's what the Gemara says. And that's our bread and butter reference point. So while we can appreciate the depths of what I just shared with you, and we can think about that again for the rest of our lives, really. But, but at the same time, we have to stay grounded in the Gemara, because that's our, that's our foundation. Remember, what, what is the Gemara? What is the Talmud? The Talmud is God's own explanation of the verses. This is what the Jewish people have, and the rest of the nations do not have this. They have their own interpretation of the Torah, which is very nice for them. But I want to know God's interpretation of the Torah, since the whole thing is about God anyway, right? Can you imagine someone says something fairly mysterious to you? Now, you can have a team of experts, right, on Fox News explain to you what the, what the person meant, or you can have what the person who said it meant. I, 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 don't, I don't hear from the team of experts. I want to hear from the person who said it. So if God himself is explaining the verses of the Torah, I want to hear it from God. Do you understand? That's what the Talmud is. And the Jews have the Talmud. And one of our missions is to shine this light on the world and to let them know what is contained in the Torah. But we have that unique ability because we have the explanation, the true explanation of the verses. That's, that's very important. Now, that's a responsibility. That's not, that shouldn't be a springboard for arrogance, God forbid. That, that's not what it is. It, this is, means that you have a responsibility. So, so that's, that's important. So, you know, does a teacher spend the entire class saying, look at me, I'm standing and all of you are sitting. <laughs> look at me, I'm speaking and all of you are writing. Is, is that how a teacher fills the hour class? No, the teacher has a job. Teach. No, teach. So that is our job, to teach, not to talk about the fact that we're teaching. It's just to teach, period. Okay, very good. So, again, let's, let's understand what our overview is. It's the two commandments that God spoke, because this is what the Gomorrah, the Talmud, Gomorrah and Talmud I'll use interchangeably. So now we have to have a full appreciation, or at least a little bit of a, an appreciation, 
What are these two commandments? Well, the first commandment is, I am God your God, who took you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Okay. Now, the Rambam says very, just kind of cuts right to it, right? He says that is because what's, it's not so clear. What's, what's the command in there? Do you hear a command in there? I am God, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It's not obvious to me what that, what that commandment is exactly, but the Rambam explains it very clearly to believe in God. That's okay. And it makes sense that if God is going to speak, that that would be the first, most foundational thing. Belief in God himself. And, and God is not only commanding you to believe in him or, or showing you how to believe in him, but, but God is giving you the opportunity by, by, by revealing himself, so to speak. I mean, there's, there's what to reveal. There's no, God doesn't have a body. There's no physicality. It says when God spoke that the words appeared before them the letters in a form of fire. So I heard Rabbi Steinsold say something so brilliant. He said, for thousands of years, people were speaking to God. At Mount Sinai, God spoke back. That's amazing. That's amazing. Let me just say one more thing about the first commandment, because I think you see God's incredible modesty. God is so humble, so to speak. I mean, we can't really just throw words on God, because God is beyond, 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 beyond right? But let me explain, because if I were writing that speech, if God said to me, okay, give me, give me some talking points, you know, I want an opener. How should I introduce myself to humanity for all time? Well, I think like most people, I would have suggested you, you should say, I, I'm the one who created the universe. That, that, that is very intuitive. That makes perfect sense. God doesn't say that. Isn't that fascinating? Do you see God's utter humbleness and humility that he doesn't use that language about himself? You know, Rabbi Green used to point out something amazing, which is that, you know, when you see, when a painter paints a painting, he writes his name or she writes her name in the corner of the painting. But when you see the Grand Canyon, do you see in the corner of the sky, by God? <laughs> like, like, if I made the Grand Canyon, believe me, you would know about it. <laughs> I think that holds true for most of us. And yet Hashem remains like so beautifully, awesomely, awesomely humble. It's incredible. It's really incredible. Okay, so that's that's number one. Number two is how does God introduce himself? I am God, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, meaning out of slavery. Meaning to say, you know what? God, so to speak, could impress us with, with his awesome resume, so to speak. But what is he most concerned in communicating when during this first meeting, so to speak? 
I'm with you in your pain. I'm with you in your suffering. I'm with you at your lowest points. You probably think when you're at your lowest points that I've abandoned you, and that's why you're at your lowest points. So I'm telling you, at your lowest points, I'm 10,000% there. Because life can be very hard. And one of the main ways to get through life is to realize that you're not alone. Especially when things are toughest. So we know that the Jewish people were about to blink out of existence. You know, it says if we were there another moment, that, that we would have been gone, basically. Moshe would have shown up if he had shown up a, a moment later, and he'd say, I'm here to take you out of slavery. And we would have said, what do you mean slavery? Do you understand that 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 there's a depths of slavery where the slave doesn't even know that the slave is a slave anymore? And how do you rescue a person like that when they don't even know that they need to be rescued? Now let's get to the second commandment. The second commandment is don't have any gods beside me. That means no intermediaries, right? That means it's just God. Ain od novada. There is no other power than God. The Jewish people don't say, our God is stronger than your God. That's not our message to the world. Our message is, there is only one God. It's it, period, end. Okay, so, so you might think that that second commandment is not necessary. Because if you have the first commandment, which is just to believe, to, to believe in God, doesn't that mean don't believe in other gods? Well, you could make a case for that. But God thought otherwise. And let's go with God's opinion for now, right? God explicitly spoke out the second commandment, right? So that means that from God's point of view, that second commandment was really necessary. Now I'm going to tell you something that Rebbe Nachman says, which explains this, why it was so necessary. And this changed my life and made me sort of leapfrog in my spiritual journey. Almost more than anything else, I have to say. This was, this was a very, very central teaching in terms of my own personal development. So I'm going to share it with you right now. So Rebbe Nachman says, believe it or not, some people, and you're not supposed to do this, but, but, but some people believe in Hashem and they believe in other powers. You would think that if you believed in Hashem, you wouldn't believe in any other power, any other God, right? Any other manifestation that you would call God. And yet, many people do. So this second commandment is coming to tell you, you can't, it's just Hashem. You can't have any of these intermediaries, any of these other religions, any of these other powers. And that includes, by the way, money. That includes your boss. 
That includes your neighbors. Because we are giving power to so many other people. And we are receiving from so many other forces. Can I tell you something? Just receive from above. Just receive from above. I understand you probably have a boss who pays you money and you have to respect him. And the Torah says that you have to, and you have to show up on time, and you have to be honest at work, and you have to put in your hours. You have to do all of those things. If you are an employee, you have to be a good employee. At the same time, though, your boss isn't paying you. He might be the conduit through God that God is flowing your, your income through, but just receive directly from God. And that is really one of the secrets not to become enslaved in this world. And I'll tell you something, how seriously I take this. I work with so many different people, different agencies, all, all things like that, you know, and, and the nature of my work is that you go from job to job, so there's all new sets of people entering into my life at different stages. And I will go through, by name, with myself, this is a private devotion, I will go through, by name, every single business person in my life at the moment, and I say, it's not him, and it's not him. I do this by name, and it's not her, it's not her, and it's not that person, and it's not that company, and it's not that company. It's only from you, God. I'm receiving only from you. And I really recommend you do that exercise, because it will really bring clarity to you. And you know something? You have to do that exercise on a regular basis. Because, you know, it's like, I don't know. I, I Once I was driving on the freeway and I was falling asleep, or I was getting really sleepy. And I thought, okay, this is too much. I got to pull over to the side of the road and I got to get some coffee. And this was, you know, like a very, you know, s s sparsely populated stretch of highway. I was lucky to find one of these, you know, gas stations that, that had that had a little mini mart that was open. But you know, it was, it was, it was, some of these places when they're open, they lock their doors. So, so you can't actually go in, you, you tell them what you want, and then they'll, they'll bring it and they'll kind of push it through the window there. You know, so this is, was one of those situations. Now, I had just sort of discovered coffee at this period in my life. So, you know, of course, I'm now a, a gourmet coffee drinker, right? And this is like a little <laughs> podunk, kind of like, and I remember it's like, it's like, like 11 p.m. or something like that. And I said, do you, do you have any coffee? And he's like, yeah, we have coffee. And I, <laughs> and I said, when did you make it? <laughs> right? You know the expression, beggars can't be choosers? Well, here I am, like all of a sudden I've got my, my gourmet, my gourmet coffee hat on. And I'm like, when did you make it? And he kind of thought about it. Now it's 11 p.m. He says, mm, today. <laughs> now, when he said today, I heard 2 p.m. I don't know. <laughs> he didn't say those words, but that's what I heard. I was like, so, 
Why am I telling you about coffee? Oh my goodness. I don't know. I got so deep into that story, I forgot about everything. You can't have any, you can, you can only receive, you just receive directly from Hashem. That's the thing. You just receive directly from Hashem. And that will free you. That, that will free you. Oh, I know, I know why I was telling you that. That you have to run through the names of the people in your life on a regular basis, you know? Do it every day, every few days, whatever you need. Because we're kind of like, you want fresh coffee. Human beings are really confusing because we seem pretty solid. I mean, for the most part, we last for about, I don't know, 70, 80 years with, with any luck more than that. For the most part, we seem pretty sturdy. But the reality is our existence is like, you know, it's like bread. It's like you want fresh bread. Once it gets day old, it gets put into a different section of the bakery, you know, with that scarlet letter on it, day old bread. (laughs) Which, by the way, if you toast it, day old bread is fine. So, you know, if you want to save some money, there's nothing wrong with day old bread. Just, Just the secret is to toast it. Also, pastries. Pastries can get old, too. Pop them in the microwave, 15 seconds. It's like they just came out of the oven. So, anyway, it's just just advice from someone who needs to lose some weight. Anyway, the point is, is that we are this mix of spirituality, soul, which is ever fresh, and physicality, which has a certain endurance, a certain sturdiness and durability to it. And our essence is this this freshness. Our essence is not this durability. But we get confused when we think about ourselves. And we think that our souls have that kind of durability like our bodies do. And that's when we fall into trouble. Because as I've told you, just kind of a, another variation on this, but the, the best variation on it, Rabbi Wilson shared that if someone asks another person, when did you eat breakfast? Or did you eat breakfast today? And the person says, I ate breakfast yesterday. So mazel tov, you ate breakfast yesterday. What does, what does that have to do with today? Breakfast is only good if it was eaten today. It, it's, it's, it's something for the moment. That's our souls. That's our souls. And, and the point he's making about that's a muna, that's faith. Faith has to be renewed every single day. See, we, we, we look at ourselves and we see our bodies. We don't see our souls when we look at ourselves. And so we think just like our bodies have a durability to it, so our faith and our souls have to have a durability to it also. That just strikes us as intuitive. But it's, it's utterly incorrect. We are two different compositions merged together. And God willing, we'll, we'll be able to go a little more deeper into that in a bit. But, but the notion is this. It's possible, meaning, not, this is not a positive thing. What I'm about to tell you is a negative thing. It's possible to believe in Hashem and to add on extras, to add on beliefs in other powers in addition to Hashem. And God himself is telling you, don't do that. 
It's just me. It's none of the other stuff. So what I would suggest to you is to do an exercise in terms of your own life. Ask yourself, what else are you putting your faith in other than Hashem? Because that will be a big road to liberating your soul and to freeing yourself and to keeping to keeping the Torah. It's a, this is a very major thing. Okay. So again, we have two commandments that God himself spoke. Now, Rav Frommer brings from the Zohar and from other sources something very amazing. Now we're going to start to get deeper, okay? Which is that all of the positive commands in the Torah, remember, the Torah can be broken down into two categories. There's lots of ways, by the way, of classifying the commandments of the Torah. But this is one of the major ways of doing it, which is the do's and the don'ts, right? Right? The shalls and the shalt nots, right? Or in Hebrew, we say the mitzvah's ase, which means to do, action. The mitzvah's lotase, which means not to do. Okay? So that's, we have within our souls twin engines, which is action and restraint. So you have to know when to act and you have to know when to restrain yourself. And David Amelech put it beautifully in the Psalms and the Tehillim, Sur meira va'asetov, which means refrain from bad and do good. Okay, this is all kind of speaking of all the same thing. We're all within the first two commandments of the Torah, within the uh, Ten Commandments. So, so now listen to this. Here's it's getting deeper. All of the dues, all of the dues, and there's two hundred and forty-eight of them. All of the dues. Oh wait a second. Yeah, two hundred forty-eight. All of the dues are contained within the first commandment of the Torah. And then we have all the do-nots, all the lotases, and all of them, all 365 of them, are contained within the second commandment. So... That's really interesting because we see now on, remember, I'm trying to give you a big overview, a big overview right now. So now we're hearing a very essential teaching. What we're hearing is that, that the, 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 the focus part, the, the, the tip of the mountain of every positive commandment that we do is an expression of our belief in God. Every positive thing that we do is all under the category of that first commandment, which is to believe in God. And everything that we refrain from doing is all under the category of don't turn to other gods. Isn't that interesting? That's, this is, we're getting to the depths now. Now I want to go even deeper. Was Adam, were Adam and Eve Jewish? Were Adam and Eve Jewish? So that's, that's an interesting question. Well, 
I don't know that they were Jewish. However, however, listen to this next point. They did have the Torah. Because the entire universe is made out of the Torah. Now, I've shared with you many times, but it's a fascinating question, and you almost never hear it discussed, which is, everybody knows that we ate from the tree of knowledge and we listened to the snake, and we weren't supposed to do that. Everybody knows that. But there's a fascinating, fascinating area of study, which is, before we ate from the tree, what were we, what were we supposed to do? And the answer is the first two commandments. <laughs> and it's actually written in the Torah. It says that God commanded Adam to work and to guard the garden. To work the garden is the positive commandments. To guard the garden is to refrain from doing anything wrong. And what did we just say? That the first two commandments contain all 613 commandments. So we see that Adam and Eve had the Torah and were commanded in the Torah. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. So what was the positive commandment? In other words... How was, we said that the, the Rambam says the first commandment is to believe in God. So how was Adam to express his belief in God in an active way? So I saw a very interesting piece from Rabbi Yehuda Sherpin. He's a Chabad rabbi. And I thought that this was very interesting. He brings, he asks this question, and he brings a medrash that I that I wasn't familiar with, and it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful teaching. You ready for this? He says Adam's work was to name the animals. And then, and that's that's actually in the Torah itself. And he says that, that according to the Medrash, that God first showed the animals to the angels and that the angels could not come up with names for them. Isn't that fascinating? And then God showed those same animals to Adam and Adam was able to name them. Isn't that fascinating? And he brings the following explanation. Why weren't the angels able to name them? And why was Adam able to name them? And what does this have to do with believing in God and our work in the Garden of Eden before we ate from the Tree of Knowledge? In other words, you know, ideally this would have been our job. We would have gotten this and we would have gone into Shabbos and that would have been the end of history right there. Okay. So the answer is, as he explains it, is that this idea of 
life forms in this world is a combination of a soul. Now, animals don't have a godly soul. Only humans have a godly soul, but animals do have a soul. So animals are souls inside bodies, and that's something that the angels can't relate to because the angels are essentially just spiritual beings. They don't have bodies. So this interplay of the spiritual and the physical is something that they can't name. When you name something, that means that you've got a handle on it. Like, you know, when you say to someone, oh, I just figured it out. I know who you are. <laughs> I know what you are. What are you doing? You, you've wrapped, you have grasped the concept and now you're ready to put a name on it. Well, the angels can't grasp the concept of a soul in a body because they themselves don't have bodies. But, but the human being is a soul in a body. So he can relate to that. Now, let's go deeper. It's not just that Adam had the tools and the angels didn't have the tools. This is, we're, there's, more, there's more to it than that. Which is that what Adam was doing, and these are my words now, what Adam was doing, or my understanding of the matters, is Adam was uniting the spiritual realms and the physical realms. And he was making them one with these names. And that was the work. That is the work of belief in God because what Adam was showing was that there is no, there, that only God exists. All of the physical realms and all of the spiritual realms are all one. And by, by putting names on them, he was unifying that concept for all time. And by the way, the, you know, it, they say that what Adam was able to do was, since God created everything with these energy wavelengths that eventually become the, the letters, that, God, that Adam was able to read which letters they were made out of, which energy wavelengths they were made out of, and he was essentially reading their names. That's how he gave them their names. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It says, we have a teaching that, that there's one of the last forms of prophecy, that there's, you know, there's a prophecy given to sort of idiots and drunkards, right? That they, they have a certain prophecy, I guess, because they're so beyond themselves at the moment, you know, that something can come through them. But more commonly, we, we say over this, this other teaching, which is that parents have prophecy or a, a taste of prophecy. There's no prophecy left in the world anymore since the destruction of the temple. But, but we, have, we have a taste of prophecy when parents give the name to their children. Isn't that interesting? So there's some aspect of the parent which is, so to speak, able to read the letters on the soul of the child. Isn't that something? That's how I would relate it to what we're learning right now. The parent can, can sort of divine what those letters are, and, and that's what the name becomes. And of course, your name is your mission. So it's, why does a child have that name? Why is the child imprinted with those letters, so to speak? Because that, those energies have been, you know, coalesced in that being in order for them to perform these tasks in this world. And they've been given the power to do it. Isn't that something? So, 
So that is what the positive commandment of Adam was to do, right? To reveal the oneness of God. And that's all within the the first commandment, all right? And then what about, what does it mean to guard the garden, right? So again, that relates to the second commandment, which is going to be all 365 don't do's. And that was, don't listen to the snake. Because what did the snake say to Adam and Chava? God doesn't want you to be God too. Right? God is trying to block you out of the God club, but you can you can also be God. Right? So so it was not only seeing other powers in the world, but making yourself into one of those powers. And that was a very, very hard test because God hid himself a little bit and, and we got confused. It says that the, the, the snake was the, the trickiest, the absolute trickiest. So we got all confused, basically. And remember, the world was still just a little bit incomplete. Like we want to say that we, how could Adam and Chava have listened to the snake? God was so revealed. Mm, not exactly, not exactly. Remember, as Reb Shlomo teaches so brilliantly, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? Right? So there, there you have it. That was the second commandment. All the don't do's were all like right there, don't listen to the snake. Well, Now let's go to Mount Sinai. Now let's go to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, it said that that we got lifted up like Adam and Eve before they ate from the tree of knowledge. That's what it says in the Talmud. So I always had this question, which is, if that were the case, why didn't Mashiach come then? That was my question. But now, based on everything that we're learning, we can understand the following. Remember I told you that everybody knows Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge, and then that's usually where the story begins for most people. And it's just like, how can we get out of the hole that we're in? Well, but there's more to it than that. Because before we ate from the tree, we had a job to do. In fact, we had two jobs to do. We had the first commandment and the second commandment to work and to guard the garden, all the positive commandments and all of the negative commandments. So that's why Mashiach didn't come when we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, Because we just rose to the level of Adam and Eve before they ate from the tree of knowledge. But now we got to do the work that Adam and Eve had to do to work and to guard the garden. So where do you see the working and the guarding of the garden? What form did it take by the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai? 
because we have to know this, because this would have completed creation then. We had this other amazing, amazing opportunity at that moment. Okay, so, so there, there are two things. One is, we have to know what went wrong. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when, when we were like Adam and Eve before we ate from the tree of knowledge at Mount Sinai, it says that the Jewish people at that point had achieved immortality. That we were never going to die. We had immortality at that moment. And the way to understand that on a sort of practical level is the Chedush Arim, the first Ger Rebbe, says that the letters on the tablets, on the luchos, right? The luchos are the tablets. The letters on the tablets were like our soul. The letters were like our soul. The tablets themselves were like our body. Now, when God gave us the luchos, when God gave us the Torah, God carved the letters into the stone. Now, when you see... You see, when you write on paper, that's ink on paper. When you carve something, it becomes one unity. The letters become one with the, with, with, the, with, the, with the rock. Meaning to say that when God gave us the Torah and we accepted the Torah, our souls and our bodies became one. Do you understand this? Because the soul is the letters, and the tablets are the body. And the, the, the letters were engraved in the tablets, which means our soul became absolutely one with our body. And when the soul is completely absorbed into all the limbs of the body, there is no death anymore. That is immortality. It is immortality. And remember, when it comes to Techias HaMesim, which is going to be when all of the dead arise again, the righteous arise again, right? Which is going to happen. That is what's going to happen. We will be in our bodies, but our souls will be completely absorbed in our bodies. Okay. Now the Medrash says that when Moshe went to smash the tablets, the letters flew off the stone. Do you understand what that means in terms of us? It means our bodies and our souls became detached again in some essential way, which means to say, and that happened after the sin of the golden calf, which we're going to get to, because you're going to see how the sin of the golden calf is going to be an exact parallel to listening to the snake in the Garden of Eden. Okay. Death entered into the world again. We became mortal again. Now, what does it say when we ate, when we listened to the snake? What does it say? It says it right in the written Torah. It's right there. It says we brought death into the world. Do you see how the loss of immortality and Mount Sinai and death coming into the world by listening to the snake? It's exactly the same. The golden calf and the snake. Remember, the Talmud itself says, we were like Adam and Chava before we ate from the tree of knowledge. So what was the don't do? 
In other words, once we got the Torah, now we have two more things we have to do. We have a do and a don't do, right? Just like Adam and Chava. What is the don't do? Well, the don't do is don't make a golden calf. <laughs> that's, that's the don't do. Just like it's don't listen to the snake. Okay, but why did we make the golden calf? All right, so now this is going to get us to the do, the positive command. The Gomorrah says in Gomorrah Shabbos, right? It says on page 88, says that, that God gave us a test. Now remember, what's left that we have to figure out is God is going to give us a test. Now, since we know that that's going to be the do, the positive commandment, the belief in God, right? So we have to understand that this test is going to come in that category. It's going to test our belief in God. because So we can check off the, the first commandment, right? So how is God going to test us to believe in him? Fascinating, fascinating test he gives us. So the Gomorrah explains the following. That God instructed the Satan, and my son, I was so proud of him, I was learning this with him last night, my son Mendy, said that the word Satan in Hebrew is the same gematria as Nachash, snake. Isn't that fascinating? Within one, Imakola, within one. 358 and 359. Fascinating. Fascinating, because it's the same energy. Remember, the Talmud teaches that the Yetzahara, the, which is the evil inclination, the Malach Amavis, which is the angel of death, and the Satan, which is the heavenly accuser, it's all one. They're all one. It's one spectrum of energy. And it just comes and manifests itself at different levels of, of, of creation to try to tempt us, to try to pull us away, or, or, or to give us a, a, a way of putting more light into the world by saying no to it. Remember, when it's not a separate power, you have religions that think that, that, that there's a devil and it's a separate power and it's God against the devil. This is not Torah. This is not Judaism. This is not, this is not emesis. This is not truth. There's only one power. It's only God. The thing, though, is that a person has to understand the following. When the Satan comes to a person, when the, when the spiritual temptation comes to a person in whatever form, it wants you to say no. It wants you to say no to it. And when you say yes to it, it says, it cries and rips its garment. When you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. So from this, we understand that, that all forces of opposition work for God and are just just another tool that God uses because there's only God and there is no other power other than God. Okay, so now God is going to test our belief. So the Gomorrah says the following, that God instructed the Satan to show the Jewish people a vision of Moshe lying dead in a coffin. And God wants to know how are we going to react? So there, were, there was a segment of the Jewish people who were Egyptians 
who went out with the Jewish people. They were called the Erev Rav. And there's a whole recording of a discussion that Moshe has with God. God says, don't bring them for whatever reason. And Moshe's like, they, they want to follow you. You know, how can I not bring them? So God says, okay, so bring them. So, so the, you have the Erev Rav there. And our rabbis explain that when the vision of Moshe was shown dead, that there was a panic among the Erev Rav that we had lost our leader and they wanted to create an intermediary to replace Moses. Who is going to lead us? We need an intermediary, they thought. And so they made the golden calf. And so the golden calf is this intermediary that never should have been made. And which basically threw history off course in a major, major way. But again, we know what we did wrong. We made the golden calf. That was the, we, we fell down the, the pit of the second commandment. Don't have any intermediaries, anyone else beside me. But what were we, what were we supposed to do? And the answer, as I understand it, is we should have said, we've lost our greatest leader, but we have you, God. We have you. And we don't need anyone else other than you. Because we have a direct relationship with you, and we don't need anyone else. We don't need anything else. We have you, God. And had we been able to do that, that would have been the fulfillment of the first commandment. Remember, in all of the commandments, the first commandment is believe in God. All of the commandments are contained within that. All the shouting outs are contained within the second commandment. And that was the work that we could have done once we rose above Adam and Eve before we had eaten before from the tree of knowledge, but we still had a job before we ate from the tree of knowledge. And again, that's those first two commandments. And we could have done this. Okay, now I want to bring you to today and yesterday as promised. What is this day, the 17th of Tammuz? What is this fast day that happened yesterday on Shabbos? And I told you that we were drinking wine and eating meat on this fast day, with permission to do so, by the way. In fact, we're supposed to do it. That was the right thing to do. Today we're fasting. The fast gets pushed off to today. But that's we were supposed to do it because it was on Shabbos. Okay. Now, without getting too deep, because this is a whole field of Torah in itself, let me just introduce an idea to you, which is, do you know what the building blocks of the universe are? It's Light in vessels. You have light and you have vessels. Vessels that hold the light. The mitzvot are the vessels. And they hold the light. Okay? It's light and vessels. And you have this in many, many iterations. 
And that's basically how the universe is made because the light, the heavenly light gets condensed. How does it get condensed? This word simsum, because the light goes into a vessel. And that vessel, if it's really a high vessel, is also made out of light. Isn't that wild? <laughs> but like, like a slightly denser form of light. Okay, so it's everything is light in vessels. Now, I heard Reb Shlomo say something. He said, in the 1960s, we had the light, but we didn't have the vessels. You know, the, the 1960s, there was so much idealism. There was so much beauty and so much dreaming and you had the Six-Day War, which was total Mashiachtic energy. There was a lot of Mashiach energy in the world in the 60s. But you know what? We didn't have the vessels. We, weren't, we didn't have the mitzvot. We had them, but we, you know, with the Holocaust and all the exiles and all the rest and all the breakdown of all the suffering, we, we've lost a lot of what what we need to be doing. Those are the vessels. Those are the mitzvot. So we had the light in the 60s, but not so much the mitzvahs yet. Then Reb Shlomo said, you know what? In the 70s, we had the vessels, but we didn't have the light. <laughs> so this is basically one way of viewing the fixing of the world. We need the light and the vessels. We need the inspiration and we need the mitzvah observance. We need them both. We need them both. You can't be just doing this stuff, although it's better to do the... It's, if you need to choose one or the other, choose the vessel. <laughs> okay? Sorry to get unspiritual on you for a moment, but I'm telling you the bottom line right now. If you, if you need to do one or the other, then just have the vessel. The light will come. But if you have the light and you have the inspiration, but you don't have vessels for it, you're not grounding it. You're not grounding it, right? Remember what I told you in the beginning about you got to give the, the whole email address. You can't just give like most of your email address if you want it to get through. Those are the mitzvot. That's the grounding of the light. That's the grounding of the light in the best way, the harnessing of the light. So let's use better language for it. Okay, so now let's talk about this amazing date on the calendar that a lot of people don't pay attention to and they don't know much about, the 17th day of Tammuz. Do you know what happened on the 17th day of Tammuz? Well, most people will tell you that the wall of the Beis HaMikdash was breached. And that's the beginning of the destruction of the Holy Temple in Israel and of course, three weeks later, on the 9th of Av, on Tisha B'Av, the, the temple itself gets burnt to the ground, right? Both temples on the same day, different historical times. So, and of course, the 9th of Av is, you know, the, just the calamity day of the Jewish people. But anyway, the 17th day of Tammuz is, so to speak, the beginning of the end. The wall gets breached. Okay. All well and good, except... There's a much earlier reference to the 17th of Tammuz in the Torah. And that's what I want to bring your attention to. 
And believe it or not, this whole talk has been leading up to this, and you've done all of your homework without even realizing it for this next thought. Guess what happened on the 17th day of Tammuz? The golden calf was made, and the tablets were smashed. That's what happened. That's what happened. Now, I want to get into that story because you're going to hear some very, very interesting details about it. We know Moshe is up in, in, at the top of the mountain. And remember, it says that God brought heaven down to earth, which means that God brought heaven to the tip, to the top of Mount Sinai which means as much as Moshe was at the top of Mount Sinai, which is an earthly coordinate, he was at that time kind of in another dimension, inside the cloud on top of Mount Sinai, which was essentially heaven. Okay, you could say he was one step away from earth, which is true, but he was in heaven, which means the Torah, so to speak, was still in heaven. It hadn't been fully received yet. That was supposed to happen on the 17th of Tammuz when Moshe came down from Mount Sinai with the tablets in hand. That would have been the finishing of the giving of the Torah and that was meant to be a separate holiday among the Jewish people, which would have been the full receiving of the Torah. Now, I want to give you a support for that. If that sounds like I'm adding a step, and I never heard of that step, and I'm going to give you more support for it. You're going to see that this is real, what I'm talking about. The Gomorrah asks, the Talmud asks, why did Moshe break the tablets? So, unfortunately, the, the, the layman's view is, yeah, Moshe got really mad, and he said, I'm breaking these things. That's not... There's so much more going on than that. You think that's what it is? Just we put him in a really bad mood, and he just started like kicking the dog, right? Like you know, throwing his coffee cup at the wall. I mean, is that who you think Moshe Rabbeinu is? God forbid. So why is he breaking the? Why is he breaking the tablets? So the 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 Talmud explains that he was saving the Jewish people. Well, how is he saving the Jewish people? Because it says in the Torah, you can't have any other gods before me. And so Moshe reasoned that if he breaks the commandments, we and, and he hasn't descended yet to the ground with him, that we haven't fully received them yet. If he breaks the commandments, then we are not subject to that commandment, which means we haven't broken that commandment. So in other words, he was protecting us for having broken one of the absolute fundamental things that God is saying at Mount Sinai, one of the two. Not just one of the two, but the, you know, don't have any other gods before me, which contains all 365 don't do's in the Torah. So, in other words, by ripping up the contract before we've officially signed it, Moshe was protecting us from having broken it. Do you understand? 
It was, it was a great act of love and kindness that Moshe did. But from this you see, you see, if I, if I sign a contract and then I break the contract and then I rip up the contract, you know what? Meet me in court. You signed that contract. What are you doing ripping up the contract? You signed that contract. We had a deal. It doesn't help to rip up the contract if you've already signed it. Which means that there was a must have been, if it was effective for Moshe to break the tablets, thereby protecting the Jewish people because now this agreement doesn't exist, it means that the agreement can't have been fully transacted yet because Moshe didn't get to the ground yet with the, with, with the, with the tablets. We hadn't fully received them yet. Now, that does happen. Do you know what day that happens? This is with the second tablets, which then Moshe prays for 40 days after this event, and Moshe, God says, go back up to Mount Sinai. That's the first day of Elul, and, and Moshe is up there for another 40 days, and then Moshe comes down 40 days later after going up on the first day of Elul. Do you know what day Moshe successfully comes down with the tablets for the Jewish people so that the Torah is fully accepted? Do you know what the name of that day is? Yom Kippur. Why is Yom Kippur so great? Why is Yom Kippur a day of forgiveness? Because that's the day when Moshe finally gets down with us with the tablets intact. That's why it's the most amazing day in the world. That's why we're all like angels in the, on that day. That's why we don't eat on that day. Do you think we don't eat on that? Because angels don't eat. Because we're like angels, because that's the fusion of heaven and earth. Yom Kippur, that day. Most awesome day. Most awesome day. Now, if you're not, I haven't fully explained it yet, because you're going to see it in a much more particular, much more specific way, and then... If you have any question marks in your mind still, they should go away. I'm going to lead up to it because it's a great story. It's a great story. Poor Aaron. Poor Aaron. You know, all of our hearts should be breaking for Aaron. Because Aaron was put in the worst situation. Just a horrendous situation that he tried to make the best out of. Like even Moshe's heart was breaking for Aaron, what Aaron had to do. Now remember, Aaron is the Kohen Gadol. He's the high priest of Israel. Like any rituals that are taking place among the Jewish people, you got to go through Aaron to do that. Everyone understood that. So the people are like panicking. They say, Moshe's dead. We need an intermediary, a go-between between us and God, which is... You know, believe me, Aaron knew this is nonsense. This is terrible. But he sees that there's going to be like, there's like a riot about to happen, right? They've already killed one of the greatest people, the, the, the Jewish people. Miriam and, and Kali's son has been murdered. It's, it's going to be mass hysteria unless Aaron can get a grip on this mob, the Arab Rav. Unless he can get a grip and calm this mob Everything is going to go, you know, really bad. So they say, okay, we want to make, we, we want to make this 
this this God, we want to make this God. And Aaron says, okay, right? Because Aaron is the man of peace. Now, again, imagine being Aaron in this situation. How would you handle this situation? If you say, if he starts yelling and screaming at them, that is going to throw gasoline on this blaze and everyone's going to get consumed. So Aaron goes, okay, okay. You know what? We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. And now listen to how brilliant what Aaron says is. It's totally inspired. He says, gather all the gold from your wives and your kids <laughs> and bring it back to me. Now, we... I will, I'll just speak for myself. I've read past that line so many times and I've never appreciated the utter brilliance of that line. Go and get your wives and your children to give up all of their gold and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll take the next step. Now remember, Aaron, in other words, he knows they're not going to give up all their gold. So, 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 so Aaron has found this brilliant delay tactic because Aaron knows Moshe's alive and Aaron knows that he's coming down the mountain the next day. By the way, what day is that going to be? What day on that calendar is the next day? The 17th of Tammuz, which is 40 days, 40 days after the giving of the Torah. So that that, you know, we talk about the number 40, and without going on too much of a sidetrack here, 40 is a very beautiful number in Torah. 40 really shows on completion, right? Like, probably the first 40 is 40 days and 40 nights of rain. By the way, the Torah, the Gomorrah says that, that Torah is like water. And that at the time, at the time, the Zohar says, that at the time of Noah, that had the people been worthy, at the time of Noah, the Torah would have been revealed. But because the people were so unworthy, the Torah came down in its physical form as water itself. So you had 40 days and 40 nights of rain instead of, instead of this heavenly light that came down at Mount Sinai. Isn't that interesting? So that's that's your first 40. You've got, you've got a mikvah. That's the, where you dunk, like anyone who converts to Judaism or wants to get to a, 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 a state of spiritual purity themselves, right? Men and women go to the mikvah and, and that's 40 measures of water. So you see in, 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 and there are many more 40s, but you see in the, in the number 40, you see something very organic and whole and complete, Okay. And of course, the best example of all of them is that Moshe was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay. So on the 40th day, Moshe is coming down. That's the 17th day of Tammuz. That's going to be the final receiving of the Torah. But still, we're going to get up to that point where I'm going to show you by date that it's the 17th of Tammuz. And that it was meant to be a separate holiday. But we're, we're, we're a step or two away, but we're, we're almost there. So the Medrash says that the people were so fanatically 
like, you know, in this crazed mode that they ripped the earrings out of their ears and gave it to Moshe or gave it to Aaron, sorry. In other words, this delay tactic, which was, you know, in my opinion, you don't need my opinion on this, but in my opinion, totally brilliant, absolutely didn't work, did not work. You know, they flew over that speed bump at, you know, 150 miles an hour. Now, I'll just tell you an aside, because I think this is really interesting. Rabbi Yitzhak Amnon, who's, who's one of the biggest rabbis and has inspired so many people to, to Torah observance. I heard this. I never saw it myself, but, I mean, he's spoken to crowds in Israel. And at, one, at, at different points, the, he's said to the men there, you know, take off your earrings. And he's made crowns for the Torah, for Torah scrolls, out of those earrings, out of those gold earrings. Isn't that amazing? Not only that, but I've heard that by Tashlach, you know, that's when you throw the bread in the water on Rosh Hashanah. And that's sort of like casting away your, your wrongdoings and things like that. And they kind of sink into the water and get covered over, right? That's all part of the tshuva process, of the returning process, that in Uman, there, because Uman, people, you know, that's Rebbe Nachman's gravesite, his kever, and people of all levels of observance go there, that, that there are people by Tashlech who take their earrings, men, who take the earrings out of their ears and throw them in the water as part of Tashlech. that interesting? So, so anyway, you have now the people ripping the earrings out of their ears and giving it to Aaron. So now he's got the, the material for the gold. Now he makes the golden calf. Again, your, your heart has to be breaking a million times for Aaron, who's just trying to keep this mob in place and delay them long enough for Moshe to get down from the mountain. And now here's the point. Aaron says to them, he says, he says, wait, 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 wait. We're not going to worship this just yet. He's got one final delay tactic. He says, tomorrow, now tomorrow is the 17th of Tammuz. Tomorrow is going to be a holiday to Hashem. And what Rabbi Wolfson brings is that he understood that that was a holiday that has been set aside in the Torah calendar that we haven't been able to observe yet. And what was that holiday meant for? Isn't it interesting? Listen to the language. I only caught this, I've read this so many times. Only last night did I catch this. Aaron says, listen to the words carefully. He's saying this to the mob about the worship of the golden calf. And he's still trying to instruct them, but instruct them subtly. He says, tomorrow is going to be a festival for Hashem. Right? Not a festival for this object we just made. He says, for Hashem. He's still trying to get to them and get get them to open up their brains and their hearts. But anyway, this is the final thing that I'm sharing with you that you understand 
that this was to be a holiday. The holiday of Moshe standing on the ground, just like Yom Kippur. Because that, when Moshe did come down the, the, the mountain with the tablets intact, that was Yom Kippur. This was going to be more than Yom Kippur. <laughs> this was going to be the finishing off of all of history. Because at this point, we would have checked those two boxes. We were like Adam and Chava before we ate from the tree of knowledge. When we said, Na seven nishma, right? We'll hear it and we'll, we'll, we'll do it and we'll hear it. You don't even have to tell us what it is, God. You know, we're, just, we're on board. We know you're God. Whatever you want, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do it. Then you'll tell us the details. We got to Adam and Chava before they ate from the tree. But Adam and Chava before they ate from the tree still had to do two things. So what were the two things that we were going to do? Not the golden calf. And to say, Hashem, it's only you. We don't need any go-betweens. And then Moshe would have come down on the 17th of Tammuz, and that would have been that. That would have been that. Now, listen to this. The Navi, the prophet, Zechariah, says that the 17th of Tammuz in the future is going to be a holiday. And there you have it. You can't have it more explicitly than that. Right? He says, the 17th day of the fifth month, that's the 17th of Thomas, is going to be a holiday. And he also says, Tisha B'Av is going to be a holiday. Okay? The, so we know that the, we already see that the roots of it, like now that we know everything that we've been talking about today, the, the prophecy of Zechariah doesn't surprise us because we already saw that Aaron was saying the same thing. Way back. But, but, but the language wasn't as explicit as, as Zachariah is saying it. But it's the same day. They're talking about the same day. That it's going to be a holiday. So we know that the core of the 17th day of Tammuz is a holiday. And now listen to what happened yesterday. Remember I told you everything is light in vessels? Well, right now, the vessel that's holding the light of the 17th of Tammuz is a fast day. <laughs> but do you know what happened yesterday? We were able to enter into the inner light of the day itself. We were able to, we were able to drink wine and eat meat on the 17th day of Tammuz yesterday, which means that we were able to taste the light of the holiday itself. And then remember I told you that vessels, vessels which hold the light can be like, you know, could be like a, a golden vessel, right, in this world. But in the highest realms, the vessels are also light. Well, guess what? Yesterday, Shabbos, Shabbos was the vessel for the light. <laughs> in other words, the vessel itself was a vessel of light because we were tasting the inner light. So right now we're able to taste that future light. That's called the Or Choser. That means that this, this light of the future is being refracted into the present. And we're able to taste it now by eating on the 17th of Tammuz and, and eating on the 9th of Av this year. That's, that's amazing. But it, it shows you that that light already exists. 
just like the next world already exists, right? That's, that, that's important to know. The Olam Abad, the next world, has already been created. It's already there. Um, an exception to this is Yom Kippur. If Yom Kippur falls on Shabbos, you still fast, even though it's Shabbos, because Yom Kippur is called the Shabbos of Shabboses. So in other words, Yom Kippur itself is a Shabbos. So, and that's how you observe Yom Kippur, by fasting. So there you see that Yom Kippur is like, like this amazing, like next world experience that we're having here. So that's on like another order of magnitude. But when it comes to these two fast days, you know, we, we are already tasting that light now. Yeah. And I'll tell you something else, which is that in three weeks, we're going to have another fast day. God willing not. We'll be in Yerushalayim. But on the calendar right now, three weeks from now is the ninth of Av. And guess what? It falls on a Shabbos, which means on the ninth of Av, we're going either we're, we're either going to be doing it inside of Israel or with, with the base of Migdash, God willing, or outside, you know, plan B. But either way, this ninth of Av, we're going to be drinking wine and eating meat. Right? Which means we're going to be able to taste the inside of the holiday again. In this vessel of light called Shabbos. So, let me just conclude with a bracha, with a blessing. Don't get lost in the details. Don't get lost in the details. Don't get lost in the details. God spoke two commandments according to the Talmud at Mount Sinai. The first is to believe in him, and the second is don't have any intermediaries. Just receive from above, and let's love each other, and let's be good to each other, because basically all of the commandments are just coming to inspire that behavior in us. And you know, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, if you were alone in the desert, you were stranded in the desert, and another Jew came up to you, the first question you would, you wouldn't, this would not be the first question you'd ask when you saw another human being in the desert. Do you keep Shabbos? <laughs> you wouldn't greet him that way. Right? You would just be so glad that just, oh, thank you, God, for just sending me another person. So I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, and I'll just end on this thought, that, you know, a lot of times you feel closest to another person when they're away. You know, in English we say absence makes the heart grow fonder. When you're really missing someone, then you often feel closest to them. And yet just the, because we're complicated beings, a lot of times that person will return from the trip and you'll be with them. And boy, they'll be annoying, they'll be annoying you within five minutes. <laughs> and so Reb Shlomo says, you know what the highest level is? 
to miss someone when they're right next to you. To miss someone when they're right next to you. So that's my blessing for all of us, that we should all be close to each other and in our closeness simultaneously missing missing each other so that we only we only have the greatest closeness. And that God should bless us with the vessels, with the light, and we should be able to combine them together. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.